Hi, good evening. Welcome to uh, Bible Study. Good to see you all here uh, tonight, uh, midweek. Appreciate you all's commitment to coming. I was thinking before uh, everybody got here, I was doing some reading. I said, Lord, we're going to keep doing Bible study on Wednesday nights. We've been doing it since we started this church 12 years ago, and we're going to continue it. Uh, this, this Bible study is good. Good to study scripture together. It helps us all to grow in the Lord. So uh, learn about God and His Word and the Gospel and how it is applied throughout Scripture. So um, you know, some churches there Wednesday night service is a, a glorified church service, and they're not really learning anything. Uh, we decided not not to do that. You know, we want to make coming to church Wednesday night worth your time. And uh, that's something we will continue to endeavor to do, is open up the Bible and study it together. So it's not just me teaching, um, but all of us learning together uh, the Word of God. And so that is our continued commitment as a church and my continued commitment as a pastor to do that. So with that being said, let's go before the Lord in prayer as we get into this Word. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for blessing us to be here tonight. I pray, Father, that you bless our time together as we continue to study your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is your gift to us. These are your very words that we're studying. So, Father, I pray that you fear me with your spirit to teach this text well as we look at the seventh chapter and your sovereign choosing of Israel as your people. And uh, Lord, illuminate your truth this evening by the means of your Holy Spirit to all of us uh, in here who are listening and participating, those who may be watching uh, on our Facebook feed. Lord, let this be a time of refreshment, of a midweek refreshment. Just encourage us, Lord, by your Spirit, through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So chapter 7 uh deals with God choosing Israel as his people as his covenant people we did chapter 6 we finished chapter 6 last week where we looked at uh, the cautions against uh, disobedience and again God is preparing his people to go into the, the promised land and if you're reading Joshua uh, along with me uh, you will see that in the third chapter Joshua crossed over I mean Israel crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land. I think chapter 4 today was them building a memorial with the 12 uh, stones uh, symbolizing them crossing uh, the Jordan River. So that was that fulfillment, that promise of the, the people going in to inherit the land. So, of course, the events of this book happened before that. So you're kind of seeing the before and after as we read through uh, Joshua and we're reading through Deuteronomy. You get to see both of those uh, things contrasted so this chapter here uh, one of the big ideas is that uh, Israel is chosen as a, a treasured possession and so we're going to look at the first uh, few verses here and then uh, exegete this passage so it says in verse chapter 7 verse 1 when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites seven nations greater and mightier than you when the Lord your God delivers them over to you you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them so keep these words in mind as we as we uh, read the passage uh, I had to interrupt to say that uh, one of these these things uh, you know matter as far as what's being said. So what God tells them to do, He says, "You shall conquer them and utterly destroy them." So don't lose that um, command, and don't lose this command. At the end of this verse: "You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them." You should not give your daughter for their son, nor take their daughters for your son. 
for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you this day to observe them. So we'll deal with this first part of this chapter first. So as that passage was read, you can see that God is giving Israel commandments to obey. Now, this chapter opens up with uh, some clauses that set the stage uh, for the presentation of the test of uh, Israel's love for them. Because he says here, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you are going to possess and has cast out many nations before you. So this is kind of the prelude here. God is setting the stage. You know, Yahweh has brought them into the promised land. He's cleared the way of opposition. Okay, he says, cast out many nations before you. He delivered the Canaanites into their hands. We see that. He, he lists seven nations, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, uh, Canaanites, Jebusites, Hivites. I'm sorry, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are the seven nations that uh, Israel is going to dispossess or, you know, take their land uh, from them. So when they were taking over this land, God was instructing them uh, to destroy uh, the old inhabitants. He says, when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Now, conquering lands and nations is as old as for history, ancient history. That's how nations were formed. That's how countries were formed. That's how continents were, were, were formed and made. It was all by conquering uh, lands. That is the nature of building nations. And there's no nation on this earth that wasn't conquered by someone else. And uh, that nation was settled and established. That's always happened. Um, so we see here, Israel, God had given this land to them. Um, but they had to go in and conquer that land. That was the command for them to conquer. conquer conquering meant that they had to go to war. And we'll see this uh, later on in this book. But that means that they had to go to war. You think about our nation. Uh, our nation's uh, founding, uh, you know, we had Christopher Columbus coming over to the New World and, and, and seeing the United States and seeing the uh, nations in the Caribbean and seeing this uh, land in South America. And then so uh, others came over to uh, survey out uh, this land and uh, went to war with uh, the Native Americans that were here and, and conquered this land. And then the settlers came in and settled the United States. Same thing happened in Canada, Mexico. You know all these other countries and nations they were they were conquered that is the way uh nations were were established you know that's just the way uh, it works uh in, in world history so um that's how territories were conquered that's why we had the the roman empire under 
uh, that, that Christ and all the apostles lived under they lived under uh, empires empires spread by conquering other lands other nations and establishing the empire the, the ancient Greek empire the Babylonian empire the Assyrian empire all these empires they conquered lands and brought those lands under their their rule so uh, conquering lands is as, as ancient as world history is uh, all the empires of the world um, rose and fought, fell by being conquered um, so ev even in biblical history you see that you see the Babylonian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire was uh, defeated by the Persian Empire uh, which was under King Darius and then the Persians were defeated by the, the, the Medes you had the Medo Persian Empire uh, for a few hundred years and then you had the Greeks that defeated the Medo Persian Empire and then you had the Romans that defeated the Greeks you know so forth and so on that uh, all those civilizations, you know, all those empires. It was all through conquering lands. And so we see this here in this text that uh, Israel was to come in and to destroy the old inhabitants. So it says in verse 2, when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. So, so, so in other words, Israel's task was easy. God had already promised them this nation. God had already promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God kept telling them throughout uh, the Exodus, throughout Numbers, throughout Deuteronomy, as we see that I've given them over to you. I've given these nations to you. All you have to do is go in and do what? Conquer them. That's all they have to do. And utterly destroy them. Utterly means what? Totally. Completely. So these are the specific commands that God is giving his, his people is to go in, conquer, utterly destroy. He says, you shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. You're not to feel sorry for them, to have a pity party. Say, oh, I don't want to hurt these people. You know, and, and, and some people may look at this and say, wow, that's, that's wrong. Why would, you know, why would God uh, allow them to do that? Well, this was God's sovereign will for his nation. And those nations were pagan nations. And those nations also... Uh, hated Israel. In fact, we know about the Amorites. Uh, they uh, didn't let Israel go through their land, so God had um, King Og of Abation uh, to be destroyed, you know, because the Amorites did not let Israel go through the land when they asked permission to go through. And the Amorites said no. And so God sought out to destroy them. So these nations were hostile to uh, Israel. These were enemies of Israel. Okay? Uh, so God said, you must utterly destroy them and make no covenant with them. What is what is a covenant? A, a an, an agreement with them. You know, uh, a treaty with them. You're not to make a covenant with them. Imagine what Paul said, I think, in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, for fellowship, uh, righteousness and unrighteousness doesn't have fellowship and light and darkness does not have fellowship you don't make covenant with them I mean you can't be friends with unbelievers and all those things but you can't make covenant with them you can't come into dealings with unbelievers with pagans uh, because nine times out of ten they'll draw you away from God and that's what God told them so uh, they were not to make any type of covenant with them at all they were to utterly destroy them so the men the women and the children had to be put to death. Okay? That was the terms of war. That was the terms of conquering the land. That is how they were going to be uh, conquered. So we see that the nations are many. All these nations outnumber Israel. God told them, as we see, you know, later on uh, in this same passage we read, that they were smaller than the other nations. So you had seven nations that they were going in to conquer. These are the same nations that uh, faced their ancestors. You know, the, the ones that uh, died out in the wilderness, they had to contend with these uh, nations too. God said at the end of verse 1 again that they are greater and mightier than you. Okay? Um, they are more numerous and they are stronger than Israel. So he says, you are to go in and conquer them and utterly uh, destroy them and not show mercy to them. Now, then he goes into some other conditions of entering this land. 
And it's the reason why God says this in these verses right here. So first he says in verse 3, you should not make what? Marriages with them. You shall not make marriage with them. Marriage is covenant. You shall not make uh, because you have to forbid the seductive temptation of mixed marriages. And we're saying mixed here, we're talking about uh, pagans with God's chosen people. Not uh, mixed, quote, race marriages. When God says you should not marry them, he's talking about marrying them because they are pagans. You're not supposed to have that kind of uh, relationship with them. He says you shall not make marriages with them. You should not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughters for your son. So none of their children should do that. So socially, the Israelites were forbidden uh, to allow their sons and daughters to intermarry with Canaanite men and women. They were forbidden to see that. They're forbidden to do that, rather. Why? Because when you marry them, you're making treaties with these people. You're making covenant with them. If you're marrying their children, because marriage back then wasn't just about marriage. It was about like, the coming together of families, the coming together of nations. So if you're marrying these Canaanites, guess what? You're coming together with them. So marriages uh, between Israelites would strengthen the fabric of God's people. Okay, so that's why it was important for them to marry their own people, their own covenant people. And marriages with non-Israelites will weaken that fabric. Just think about it in the practical sense. If a believer marries an unbeliever, that's why the Bible forbids it. If a believer marries an unbeliever, it weakens that marriage. Because you have one person who believes in the Lord, and you have one who doesn't. Now, I'm talking about if you marry them, not like if you're in your marriage and your husband or wife apostatizes or whatever, you know, the Bible says you stay with them as long as they agree to be married. Uh, but if you go out and you set out to marry an unbeliever just because you want companionship or they make you feel good or they're funny or they make you laugh or they got a good sense of humor or whatever other uh, superficial reason you have, if they're not a believer, a true believer in Christ, that's going to weaken the fabric of that marriage. Because guess what? You're not going to have one to study your Bible with. Who's going to pray with you? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Exactly. That's what the Bible says do. Yes, you stay with that person. Uh, if if they if you're already married, then you know you don't you don't put them to divorce. Um, but if you're already in a marriage with a, a, an unbeliever, if, if you're a woman, you know First Peter three gives good instructions for that. Uh, Paul also says that uh, in First I think it's First Corinthians seven that you don't put them out to divorce if they're willing to stay with you in that in that marriage. And then you don't do that. That's that's a good question. So um, so here, God is telling them don't set out to do that. You know, don't give your children, don't give your daughters to their sons, and don't give your sons to their daughters. So don't set out to have your children marrying these pagans, these Canaanites. So we have to look at it again in our relationships. Paul says that uh, don't be unequally yoked because, man, it can cause some problems. It can cause problems in your marriage. It can cause problems in how you raise your children. You know, the time you spend going to church on Sunday, your unbelieving spouse may not want you to or you know, cause problems because you're doing it. You know, hey, you have children. They don't want your children to go to church with you. You know, they don't want your children believing in that mess. So you're just there by yourself. You know, that's not God's ideal from the outset. It causes more problems when you are uh, in covenant with an unbeliever. It's, it's not, it's technically not a biblical marriage in that case. You had your hand raised? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, but what it shows us, that is true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so God, but God was warning them. So, 
this goes back to the warnings. God warns us for reasons. Uh, the commandments are warnings. Because he said, what will happen? Verse 4. 4. I mean, 4 is causation because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. That's why. God knows. He's wise. He's saying, don't marry. Don't intermarry with these pagans. Because what are they going to do? You notice he doesn't say that you're going to draw them to me. No. They're going to draw you away from me. And that's what happens in these type of uh, alliances that that you make with unbelievers. If you're not strong in your faith, this is not good to do because they're going to, it just is going to happen. They're going to draw your heart away from the Lord. It may not draw you physically. You may still go to church. You may still worship and pray or whatever outwardly, but inwardly your heart is slowly being drawn away from the Lord when you make these type of alliances. So that's what God is warning them against. He forbids intermarriage. I remember when, um, I think it's in Nehemiah, when Nehemiah found out that um, Israel uh, had intermarriages going on, this was after they came out of exile, uh, he was indignant. He was he was really upset because this is what caused them to go in exile the first time. You know, he, he was that upset because, you know, why are you going to do this? This is what your fathers did, your forefathers, you know, hundreds of years before, and this is what led them into exile. So that's why... Nehemiah was so upset about the intermarriages that were taking place when he heard about it because why are you doing this? This is what caused our fathers, you know, to uh, uh, sin against God. So God is warning them. This is what will happen. They will turn your sons away from following me. Why did he say sons and not daughters? Because the men were the leaders. The men were the leaders. And so goes the man so goes the nation. It was the kings who rebelled against God, not the queens. When you look in First and Second Samuel, well, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, all those, all those rebellious kings. It wasn't the wives; it was the kings who rebelled against God. It was the men, the leaders. It was the priests. It was the prophets. All these were the sons. All the false prophets were men, and these false prophets turned away from God. Why? because they were intermingling with uh, these um, these pagans, and it leads to idolatry. And so it says here, they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So that's the first prohibition. It's marriage. You had a question? Sure. That's fine. Yeah, the pagans were, yeah. The pagans were doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, good question. So next, so you have marriage, and then next you have idolatry. Verse 5. He says, you shall deal, he says, thus you shall deal with them then. What shall you do instead of marrying them? destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fires. Now, why is this important? The altars uh, of the pagans were viewed as uh, tables of the gods. That's the, the altars were what they put their idols on to be on display and also uh, to worship and, and, and the worshipers presented their offerings to those uh, those idol gods so that's what those uh, altars uh, were for now the pillars were like more like upright uh, stones uh, that were I think some of them were like engraved with religious symbols and stuff like that uh, that's what their their uh, their pillars were so they were they were upright stones that were engraved with all these different religious symbols and stuff like that. 
And so God tells them that they shall do what? Destroy them. Tear them down. Tear them down. Yet the Asherah poles, um, uh, which was, um, I think, representing fertility. Yeah, all these different pagan gods. You see them especially in the first and second kings where, where the kings were worshiping uh, the Asherah poles, uh, the goddess of fertility and and uh, all these pagan uh, gods, they had all types of idols that they worship, all types of images that they worship. And some of those kings place, though they put up what it, the, the, the scripture says, they put up high places. And high places were places of pagan worship that some of those kings of Israel had actually put up the high places. You know, so they had pagan places of worship within Israel. You know, some of those kings did. And um, man, of course, that was an abomination to to the Lord. You know, so God was telling them, you must tear them down, destroy them, break down their pillars, cut down their wooden images and do what? Burn their carved images with fire. That means uh, just totally destroy. Why is this? Because God is calling for Israel to be a holy people. A people committed to exclusive worship of him. And we see this in verse 6. Again, you have the causation uh, clause 4. Again, 4 means because. So why are they to, why are they to not make marriages in verse 3? Why are they to tear down all the places of idolatry? For you are a what? Holy Remember, the word holy means set apart. Again, we get the word saint or sanctified from that same uh, word. Holy means set apart, set aside. You are different. You're peculiar. You're not the same as those pagans. You're not uh, idolaters as they are. You are a pure people. You're not going to marry uh, the pagans. Because you are a holy people. You are a separated people. You are a called out people. So God was calling his people out. He was separating. He was showing them that they are they are separate. They were separate uh, to holiness. He says, for you are a holy people. Listen to this. To the Lord. Not of the Lord. To the Lord. That means you are separated unto God. In other words, you belong to the Lord. And those of us as believers, we are holy unto the Lord. We are holy to the Lord, meaning we belong to him. Our holiness as a people comes from the Lord. It doesn't, it doesn't come from us. It is God who makes us holy. We don't make ourselves holy. It is God who made Israel holy. He says, for you are a holy people or a set apart people. Okay. So that's why they're not to worship these pagans. That's why they're not to intermarry with these pagans, because they're different. They're set apart. Christians, we don't marry unbelievers. Why? Because we are set apart. We're different. We are holy to the Lord. It is better to be single and dedicated to the Lord, dedicate your singleness to the Lord, than to marry an unbeliever. It is. It is better to be single and worship the Lord in your singleness. Serve the Lord in your singleness. Pray for that desire for God to send you a, a, a Christian, someone who's truly a Christian, someone who's a believer. It's better to do that than to marry an unbeliever. Because, like I said, some people do it out of, out of loneliness or because of companionship, you know, uh, but what are you endangering by marrying an unbeliever? Your, your marriage is not a true one flesh union because you're not one in Christ. You're not united in Christ. You, you, you know, you, you, uh, you know, the Bible says husband love your wife as, as Christ loved the church and, and the wife submit herself to her husband. If she didn't understand her husband is, is, is the Christ figure in the marriage, then guess what? She's not going to uh, submit to his authority. Why? Because she's an unbeliever. She doesn't believe in that. If the husband's not uh, a believer and the wife is, 
He's not going to treat his wife as Christ loved the church and give himself up for her. He's not going to do that. He's not going to see himself as the Christ figure uh, in the marriage. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. How can he do that when he's not even in Christ? He doesn't know what it means to be. He doesn't know what it means to be in Christ. So how is he going to treat his wife as Christ loved the church? He can't because he's not in Christ. Yeah, that doesn't mean he can't provide and provide emotional support and do all this, you know, stuff, the superficial things. But the spiritual part is what matters the most. And he won't be able to spiritually love his wife as Christ loved the church because he's not even in Christ. So that's why this holiness, this this set-apartness is, is key with the Lord. So in this verse, we see uh, holiness. We see also election. So this verse tells us that uh, election defines our identity as God's treasured possession. And it orients us towards holiness. That's what we see here. Where do we see election at? For you are a holy people to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. This is, this points to the doctrine of election, that God chooses those whom he saves, that God chooses those, chooses those whom will be his people. Israel is a treasured possession above all the peoples of the earth. They were more special. It doesn't mean that God cared less about the other peoples. He cared about Israel more. God has a special love for his elect. Does he love everyone in creation? Yes, because he created them. But don't confuse his love with his special love. God has special love for his children, for his elect, those who belong to him uh, because they believed on his son, Jesus Christ. There's a special love that God has for his people. We are a special people. First Peter tells us this. Uh, turn to First Peter right quick. Um, it's First Peter 2 or 1. First Peter echoes this same sentiment. First Peter 2. First Peter 2 and verse 4. It says here, um, coming to him, I'm reading the whole context of this uh, verse, beginning at verse 4. Coming to him as a living, to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, you as believers, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, that means those who don't believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Christ is a rock of offense to those who don't believe. They stumble, meaning unbelievers, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. And that means they were appointed to be a stumbling, uh, that the gospel was appointed. It was appointed for them to be uh, stumbling at the gospel. Okay, it was important for them to not believe. But look at verse nine. So, as opposed to those who were appointed to disbelieve, but you—he's talking to believers—are a what? Chosen generation. What did we just read in Deuteronomy seven? God chose them. This is election. A royal priesthood. A what kind of nation? A holy nation. Okay, 
His own special people. Some uh, translate say peculiar people. Same thing. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people. Just like Israel was once not a people. But now are but now are now rather the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. This is speaking of us as believers in the new covenant. We who are believers were once not a people of God until God did what he chose us and saved us. Israel wasn't always God's people. But when God chose Abraham and told Abraham was going to make you a great nation, he chose that nation. That's the doctrine of election. God chooses us. Why? Because he chooses us. He said his desire is because he did. There's nothing that we did right because back to Deuteronomy here, verse 7 of chapter 7. Why did God choose them? Was it because of anything Israel did? No. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other people for you were the least of all the people. God didn't choose them because of anything they did. God didn't choose us for salvation because of anything we did. I heard R.C. Sproul talking about this. I've been listening to his podcast on election, and he said that if a person asks you, um, he says, he just used this story right here, you make it to heaven and someone asks you how how did you make it to heaven if you say I then you got the gospel all wrong you say if it's anything because of anything you did then you've got the gospel wrong you make it to heaven because Christ chose me because Christ saved me it's not because of anything we did we didn't do anything to make it to heaven we didn't do anything to be saved because when we say that we're making it about us God told Israel this to let them know that you are a chosen people because I chose you that was to humble them so that they would not be uh, high and mighty and be full of pride like the pagans were pagans are prideful pagans think that everything that they have is, is, is because of 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 what they've done but God chose Israel not based on any merit merit means earning something doing something he did not choose them based on merit God did not choose us to salvation based on anything that we have done if we can boast about our salvation that's not grace grace is something that is given to us it's not something that we can earn it's not something that we can do to attain the very definition of grace is unearned favor. You know, you tell a person, oh, thank you for being so gracious. Not because of anything you've done, but because they chose to be what? Gracious. If somebody like forgives a loan that you owe them, and you didn't do anything to earn that forgiveness, they just say, hey, you know what? You don't have to pay me the rest of that money. You say, oh, thank you. That's, that's, that's grace. You didn't do anything to earn. They just decided to be gracious to you. And so God, in his sovereign uh, will, uh, elected them. And this is the thing about election. Election is simply based on God's undeserving love. Because look at the rest of this. Verse 8, because the Lord loves you, that's why he chose them. Why did God choose us? Because he loved us. He loved us. And man, we can't explain that. And one commentator uh, said this about um, this chapter of Scripture, Deuteronomy 7. He says here, uh, more than any other chapter in Scripture, Deuteronomy 7 flies in the face of the modern passion for political correctness. In this chapter, Israel is given property at the expense of a group of res resident ethnic groups and told to eradicate them from the land. It was not because of their moral superiority, however, that they were chosen for such elevation. 
Israel was simply regarded as a people wholly or separated by virtue of their relationship with God. It was God's choice, not their superior behavior, that made them special in his sight, his treasured possession. And that is so true. It was because God chose them. It wasn't because Israel was somehow more uh, morally superior than the pagans. So what that says to us is God doesn't choose us because we're good moral people. You know, oh, I grew up, you know, I didn't, I didn't get in a lot of trouble. You know, I was a goody two-shoes. You know, um, I didn't talk back to my parents. I didn't rebel. I didn't give my parents a hard time. You know, I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink alcohol. You know, so never got any speeding tickets or whatever the case, whatever moral case that a person may make. That does not make them a candidate for salvation in God's eyes. It's based on nothing that we do. And God's choosing of Israel wasn't because they were somehow more uh, superior. Election is based on God's love and his faithfulness. And that's what we see here. Because, again, uh, because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of the Pharaoh king of Egypt so it was because of his love and then he goes on to say in verse 9 here we look at God's faithfulness so we have three sections so far the first one God is giving the commands on what not to do and then he shows his sovereign uh, love for them his sovereign choosing of them and now we see God demonstrating his faithfulness. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who does what? Keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. He repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. So what does God expect from his people in light of their undeserved uh, choosing? He expects them to love him, to be faithful, to keep his covenant, to keep covenant. I chose you, be faithful. I chose you, therefore, be committed to me. When God saves us, it's not just a get-out-of-hell-free pass. He saves us unto faithfulness. He saves us unto obedience to him. He saves us for a reason, to be faithful to him. We're not faithful to him in order to be saved. When he saves us, we're faithful to him. We show a covenant commitment to God. Amen. Yep. Amen. Amen. He does. He does. That is so good. That's true. No one is beyond that. You know, God loves and God still saves. So we see his faithfulness and then we see in verse 10 destruction again for those who hate him so you're telling me that God does that he repays remember vengeance belongs uh, alone to who God so he repays those who hates him okay to their hate him to their face what does he do he destroys them and he will not delay he will not be slack. That's what that means. He, he, he will not take his time. So it says he will not be slack with them who hate him. He won't delay. So those who hate the Lord, guess what? They will be destroyed. And he will repay them. So this is what we call a chi chiastic uh, 
structure it goes out and then comes back in so stars will repay those who hate him to destroy them he will not delay those who hate them he will repay them so it kind of goes out and then back you see that all in that in that one verse repays destroys them will not be slack he will repay them so goes out and goes back so in other words it shows that God does repay those who hate him just like in our life and on the day of judgment those who hate God will be repaid on the day of judgment they're going to be repaid because vengeance belongs to the Lord they're going to stand before the judgment seat of God he's going to repay every man for their deeds in the flesh whether they're good or evil for us believers remember we're not going to be judged our works are going to be judged unbelievers their sins are going to be judged because their works are rubbish because they didn't believe in God so they weren't doing their works unto the Lord they were doing them unto their flesh so all the good works that the unbelievers do guess what they're not going to get rewards for that you know this uh, well of my good deeds outweigh my bad that don't, that's not going to mean anything in the day of judgment the bad deed that you did the one bad deed is to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that's what's going to send you to hell no matter how many good works you've done so for the unbeliever their sins are going to be judged and that, that's going to be one of their sins remember those who come to me and say Lord Lord I've done this in your name I've done that in uh, that in your name you know say depart from me I never knew you I gave to charity I, I, I gave the toys for tots during Christmas time you know I helped the old lady across the street you know I donated to different causes I helped feed the poor I never knew you. Their sins are going to judge them. For us, our works, but it won't be a repay. It'll be a good repay because we'll be rewarded with the crown. Those who are evil, those who reject the Lord, they're going to be repaid in an evil way because they're going to be judged and condemned. That is what God is going to do with those who hate him. And because of all this, he says here in verse 11, therefore you shall do what? Keep. Keep his commandments. Okay? So that's what they're called to do. So now we get to the second part of this. We have blessings of obedience. Then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments. So you see how it progresses here. Verse 11, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you this day. Then okay it shall come to pass uh, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them and Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers he will love you and bless you and multiply you he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land your grain your new wine your oil the increase of your cattle basically everything you shall be blessed with all the peoples there should not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away all your sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have sworn, but will also lay, uh, but will lay them on those who hate you. Also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eye shall have no pity on them. So he's reiterating this again. Nor shall you serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. You notice he's saying that again for a second time. So these are the blessings. The blessings of election come with a condition of obedience. So this prosperity, this health, and this success that God has promised to them comes upon the condition of obedience. As they are careful to hear and to obey God, they will experience his faithfulness and his loving kindness. That is the way that this covenant was with them. Now, this doesn't mean that their obedience deserved a divine blessing. It doesn't mean that. But that obedience maintained the proper covenant relationship with God, and their people would experience the blessing of God only within that covenant relationship. In other words, it's not like, it's not like a prosperity gospel where if you obey God, he's going to make you rich. But what is it in essence saying is obedience to God 
in essence, uh, you experience the blessings of God. And it means you do anything to earn them, but there's a, you know, as we talked about before, you have a better quality of life when you obey God. Overall quality of life. Quality of life doesn't mean that you're going to be rich, but it does mean you will have a better quality of life. It will go well with you if you obey the Lord. Look at people who are not living for the Lord. Now, even the yeah, you say, man, they rich, they got it made, they ain't got no problems. Yes, they do. They have a soul. And in the middle of the night, when they can't sleep, when they leave the parties, leave all the people, leave the crowds, go back to their homes, their conscience is eating them up. They're not happy. They're not fulfilled. It's not as fun as it as it seems. I mean, you look on Facebook and man, it's like they they always got it going on. But if they're not in the Lord, they don't. They're miserable. They are. We have to know we have to we have to have a proper uh biblical anthropology that means a doctrine of man. We have to have a, a, a right doctrine of man that man has fallen. Uh, the doctrine of original sin that, that sin is real and for those who are unbelievers they're in sin they're, 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 they're hurting inside we have to have that, that, that right doctrine because you look at unbelievers and say man like they got it going on but they actually don't you have to understand the nature of, of, of fallen man the biblical nature that if you're not in Christ you're in misery because guess what if you wasn't why would you need to be in Christ if, they, if unbelievers have it just as good as we do, then why believe? Just think about it like that. If unbelievers have it just as good as we do as believers, then what's the use of believing in God? If they can have the same spiritual blessings that we have, that's not true. That can't happen. So this is the same thing we see here with, with Israel. They obey God. They will experience that quality. And that blessing again in verse 13, he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb, of the ground, the grain, I mean the land and everything. Everything. They will be blessed. The ground will be fruitful. The substances uh, and, and, and everything will just multiply. Everything will multiply. So God is saying here, look, obey me. Obedience to God is always the best way. Instead of being like these pagans who are serving all these gods of fertility and, and the gods of grain, the God of all these, you know, it's talking about the new wine and the fruit of the wound and the ground and all that thing. Instead of worshiping the, the uh, all these deities that the pagans are doing, all God is telling them to do is do what? Obey me. You have better blessings than these pagans. Your blessings will be more meaningful than what these pagans have. And then he says, verse 17, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. And they heard about this. Okay? They heard about this. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. In other words, look what I did before. What God is showing them is that his promises should combat their doubts. His promises 
to combat their doubts. That's a sermon all in itself right there. God's promises should combat any doubts that we have. If we believe in God's word and trust God's word, whatever doubts and fears we have should be put to rest. When we sometimes think that God didn't hear us, that God didn't care, that God didn't see us, oh, we, we doubt if God is listening to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you should be in your mind. Hebrews 13 and 5. Or just the faithfulness of God, period. Or I will be with you. Read, you know, back to the first chapter of Joshua again. God told Joshua, he, re, he reassured him, fear not for I will be with you. You lead these people into this land. Fear not. I will be with you. I am your God. I will be with you. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. The most common command in all the scriptures, fear not. Fear not. So the promises of God should alleviate. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have doubts. It doesn't mean we're not going to have fears. But the promises of God should lead us to not dwell on them and have those doubts and fears leading us into a place of misery and, and, and paralyzation where we just feel like we can't do anything. You know, you can be paralyzed with fear that your doubts, they can become idols. You can worship your doubts. You can worship your worry. I always have to remind myself, and uh, I think I said this to my wife uh, one day here recently, most of the time our worst fears and worries never come to fruition. Most of the time, our worst fears or worst worries, you know, we, we think about like the worst case scenario. Most of the time, that never even happens. You know, we could think like, you know, I, I, sometimes we can worry so much about something, about the outcome of something, and it ends up not being that way. And you're like, man, I wasted all that time worrying for nothing, you know. <laughs> because because we, we become so paralyzed. We, what we do, we take our eyes off the promises of God. And we start looking to ourselves. And God was telling Israel, no. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? What did God say? No. Remember what I did. Remember what I did in Egypt. I mean, think about this. God literally split the ocean in two and they saw water and these this generation was, was little at that time when they went through they were under the age of 20 they saw the water on both sides and they're walking through with all their family all their livestock all their animals all their tents and everything all the stuff they took from Egypt you know, two to three million people walking across a sea on dry ground with water on both sides. And what is God saying? If I did that, what do you have to fear about these nations? Okay, about two, three more minutes, so I'm going to try to finish up here. But, but that's what God is saying. His promises should alleviate our fears. That's that's what we see throughout all these, the rest of these verses. Verse 22, the Lord shall drive out these days from before you. Little by little, you will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God. Look at this. Look at verse 20. What does it say? Moreover what? The Lord your God. Verse 21. The Lord your God, the great and awesome God. Verse 22, and the Lord your God. Verse 23, but the Lord your God. Verse 24, and he will deliver. So who's going to do it for them? The Lord. God was assuring them, look, 
my promises. I will be with you. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to go before you. Just like he told Israel when they were ready to go into the promised land in Joshua. I will go before you. The Ark of the Covenant, that's God's presence among them. God says when the Ark goes through, you go through. When you see the Ark move, you move. Their Ark says the Lord is with us. We're going to go through. We're going to cross that Jordan into the promised land. So those promises should alleviate fear, just like we see here in this passage. The promises that we have in Christ, we are heirs with God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We're justified by grace through faith. We're not guilty. We beat ourselves up because we sin. We go to the altar. We confess our sins. We repent and turn away, but we know that we're not condemned because of our sins because Christ bore our condemnation for us. We don't have to go around condemning ourselves. Christ was the one who was condemned. Christ was the one who was punished. If something that, if, if, if it seemed like just bad things are happening to you, it's not that God is punishing you, believe it. Why? Because your punishment fell upon Christ. God doesn't punish believers, we're not punished. Christ was punished. Christ was condemned for us. So we don't have to fear that somehow I did something wrong, that's why all this is happening to me, or I did something good, and that's why God is blessing me. That's wrong too. If something good is happening, it's because of God's grace and his mercy and because he has set his electing love on us. So all that should alleviate our doubts and our fears. If you as a believer doubt God's love for you, that means that you don't think that God loves you. You think that God changes his mind. When God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. When God sets his love on us, it remains on us. God's love remained on Israel despite all their rebellions. Despite the many times they obeyed him, he still set his love on his people. He sent them into exile to punish them. But he brought them back to that land, as we saw in the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. He brought them back into that land. Because why? He says covenant love on them. We have no reason to fear. When we have those doubts and fears, when we have those worries, don't wallow in them. Rest on the promises of God. Rest on who you are in Christ. I'm reading a book about that, about identity, who we are in Christ, knowing who we are, knowing that we're gods. Y'all realize that? We are gods. Just like Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. They were a special people. As Christians, those of us who are believers, we are God's special people. God is going to take care of his own. If he takes care, just like Jesus said in Matthew 6, about the uh, not worry, if he takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, Will he not much more take care of you, O you of little faith? He's going to take care of us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he has an electing love for us. He was telling Israel that. I will go before you. He will deliver you. He will deliver that kings to your hands, and you will destroy their name under heaven. No one should be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Verse 24. This is what God does. So we're laying right there that the promises of God should alleviate our fears. That was God's promise to Israel, and that's his promise to us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people that we see here in the seventh chapter. We thank you. Lord, for showing you, us your electing love, how you sovereignly chose us to salvation just as you did with Israel. And, Lord, you chose us not because of anything that we did, anything special in us. But, Lord, you chose us because you chose us because you set your love on us. And, Lord, we thank you for your love toward your people. Lord, give us a heart to obey you because of that. Give us a heart to love, honor, and serve you. Give us a heart, Lord, to worship you and you alone as God. Give us a heart, Lord, to rest 
in who we are in you as believers, to rest in your covenant promises, to rest in the fact that you're always with us, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. That is our faithful high priest, Lord. We can always go to you in prayer. Lord, I pray that you bless our time tonight. May you use your word to encourage us, to uplift us, to strengthen us, to convict us, Lord, to grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name I pray, amen. Amen.